If you have your Bibles with you, hold them up with me, okay? And repeat after me, this is God's Word. I believe what it says is true. It shows me how to know God. It shows me how to live for God. It has the power to change my life. Now take your Bible and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. It is the last of, or the second to last to the minor prophets. We've got two more weeks in this series on the minor prophets. The very first book, or verse, excuse me, of Zechariah tells us exactly when this book was written. It was written in November of the second year of King Darius' reign. This is when the first message was delivered to Zechariah from God to give to the people. So this would have been about 520 years before Jesus' birth. Zechariah was living in Judah, right outside of Jerusalem. He was there with a number of other Jews who had come back to Jerusalem from Babylon, where they had lived in exile for 70 years. We can read about some of the things that, that were happening during this time by reading the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, because both of these books portray what was going on during this time. In Ezra chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're told that Haggai and Zechariah both preached during this time. So the prophet that, that Scott told us about last week was proclaiming the truth of God at the same time that Zechariah was proclaiming the truth of God. It was an exciting time, and yet it was a challenging time in in the life of the Jews because they had come back to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls around the city. And they had come back to the city to, to call the people back to a renewed commitment to God. Zechariah is 14 chapters long, making it along with Hosea the longest of the minor prophets. And every single chapter is filled with some incredible truths. Some of the truths are, are masked in symbolism. We, we read about horses and horns and blacksmiths. We read about lampstands and olive trees. We read about flying scrolls and even a woman in a basket. And yet some of the truths that, that the prophet Zechariah teaches us are crystal clear. He tells us about one who is called the branch who will remove the sins of the land in a single day. We are told that this one called the branch will receive the honor and rule as king and serve as priest. And this is clearly a prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ who, who came to the earth and took away the sins of the world in a single day when he died on the cross. And he is not only our sovereign Lord who rules and reigns over all creation. He is our great high priest who presented the sacrifice to God, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We are told in the book of Zechariah how Jesus would be portrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We are even told in the book of Zechariah how Jesus would die. We are told that he would be pierced for our sins. But the central message of Zechariah has to do with the rebuilding of the temple of God. You see, in 586, when, 
when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem, tore down the walls, they completely destroyed the temple of God. Now you may wonder why this was a big deal. The reason is because the temple was seen as the dwelling place of God. The temple was built for God's glory and and it was the place that the people of God would come to encounter the presence of God. It was in the temple that, that we read that Isaiah was called of God to be a prophet to the people. He had this, this encounter with God in Isaiah 6 that changed his life forever. So the temple was a big deal. When Solomon built the first temple, we, we read about it in 1 Kings chapter 8. And in verses 10 and 11 it says this. When the priest came out of the holy place, a, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priest could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Now don't miss what that says. The glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Though God's presence could be experienced anywhere God chose, God's presence filled the temple of God. But then the temple was destroyed. And the place where the people would worship God, the place where the people would encounter the presence of God was now gone. And the people were taken off into exile. But then God did something amazing. God did something that is nothing short of supernatural. God touched the heart of a pagan king and led that pagan king to want to rebuild the temple. We read about this in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, but we also read about it in Ezra chapter 1. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says this. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, let me stop right there for a second because that's significant. Here was this pagan king who worshipped pagan gods, and yet even he recognized that it was the God of the Jews. It was the God who created the heavens and the earth that gave him the power to conquer all the kingdoms of the world. And then Cyrus says this. He says, he has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. And so here's Cyrus, this pagan king. God stirs his heart and leads him to allow the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple for God's glory and God's honor. And so Zerubbabel, who was in captivity, leads a group of uh, almost 50,000 Jews and servants, and they head back to Jerusalem, intent on rebuilding the temple and the city of God. But as it always is, when you try to do something big for God, as it always is, when you seek to accomplish something for the glory of God, they encountered opposition. And when they encountered this opposition, the work of rebuilding the temple slowed down to a complete halt. And that's where Zechariah enters the picture. It is about 20 years 
after Zerubbabel and the people came back to Jerusalem. They had started rebuilding the temple, but now the temple was sitting there incomplete. It had been started, but it had been barely started. And Zechariah came along encouraging and challenging the people to complete the task that God had given them. The word temple is found 19 times in these 14 chapters. In chapter 1, God says this. He says, my temple will be rebuilt. Now you may be asking, why is this so important? Well, it's important because the temple represented the presence of God. The temple displayed the glory of God. It was the place where the people of God not only worshipped God, it was the place where the people of God encountered God. But what we need to understand today is that God's presence is not found in a building. God's presence is found in his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says this, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You see, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, God did something new. He put his spirit, he put his presence in every believer. What the Bible teaches is that you and I, who are followers of Jesus Christ, have become the Old Testament temple. We house the Spirit of God. Therefore, we display the presence of God. If people are ever going to encounter God's presence, they don't need to come to an ornate, beautifully decorated building. They simply need to find a believer, and when they do, they will encounter the presence of God. Now, here's the problem. For far too many today, we've never encountered the presence of God. Let me be real for just a moment. There are some of you, perhaps many of you here this morning, who have never encountered the presence of God. You've never experienced what it is like to have God's presence, His Spirit, come to live in you and dwell in you. And if that's the case, you're not saved. Because the Bible makes it clear that God's Spirit, His presence, dwells in every single believer. That happens when we are born into his family. When we become a part of his kingdom, his spirit comes to dwell in us. And I want you to know that I am of the belief that God's spirit, God's presence cannot take up residence in your life without you knowing it. God's spirit, God's presence cannot come to live in you without it radically changing your life. Let's go back to when God's presence filled the temple. What happened? God's presence so filled the temple that the priests could no longer perform their duties because God's presence was so manifested there. So don't tell me that when God's spirit comes to live in you, you're saved, you're born again, you're not changed. You are radically changed. Everything becomes new. 
And the problem with some of us today is we say we're Christ followers, we say that we're Christians, but we have never had a life-changing encounter with God to the point that His Spirit comes to live in us. For others of us, we've had that encounter. We've had that experience. We can go back to it and it is as real as as if it happened yesterday. We know where we were. We know what we were doing. We know how it happened, which I believe is what happened. And yet, over time, it seems like that presence of God that we had when we got saved, we just don't sense it like we used to. Now, does that mean that God's Spirit leaves us? Absolutely not. The Bible says that God's Spirit will always dwell with His people. But what happens is, is when we drift from God as followers of Jesus, we no longer experience His presence like we used to. And so how? How can we capture the presence of God in our lives if we've never experienced this? Or how can we recapture the presence of God if we've experienced this, but somehow, some way, we've kind of drifted, we've kind of changed, and we're no longer experiencing this intimacy, this presence of God in our life. Well, I believe Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4 tell us how. In Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4, we, we have two stories or, or two passages that tell us about two specific people. Joshua, who was the high priest of the people of God, And Zerubbabel, who was the governor of the people, he was the one who was leading this task to rebuild the temple. And in Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4, we discover three truths that I believe are revealed to us through through Joshua and through Zerubbabel that, that must happen in our lives if we're going to have the presence of God in our life. So, so let's just go over these this morning. And they're simple. I think they'll be easy for you to understand. And my prayer is that God will speak to you. Here's the first thing. If you want to encounter the presence of God, you must deal with your guilt. You're never going to experience God's presence in your life until you deal with your guilt. Now listen to what it says in, in Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then the angel showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, the accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Joshua. And and the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. Yes, the Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Joshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the other standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins. And now I am giving you these fine new clothes. Then I said, they should also place a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. Now chapter 3 begins like a courtroom scene. And Satan is bringing an accusation against Joshua, the high priest of God. Notice what it says. The accuser was making accusations. That's one of the primary things that Satan does. 
He makes accusations against you to God. He makes accusations against you to you. Satan is an accuser of God's people. In Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 it says this, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, John is telling us about an event that's going to occur in the future. There is coming a day when the enemy, Satan, will no longer accuse us. But today, the Bible says that he goes before the throne of God day and night accusing us. You see, Satan not only loves to get us to sin, he loves to point out our sin once he gets us to sin. Someone said it like this, Satan will whisper in your right ear, you can get away with it. And then after he leads you into sin, he goes around to your left ear and whispers in your left ear, you can't get away with it. And that's what Satan does. Satan will whisper in one ear, you can get away with it, go ahead and sin, there's no problem with it, God doesn't care, God won't know, but once we sin, he comes around to the other side and said, you're doomed. You're destroyed. You can't hide what you did from God. God knows what you do. God knows what you have done. And God's going to punish you. You're going to be separated from him forever. God whispers in our ear to get us to sin. And then God whispers in our sin, making us guilty over our sin. He accuses us day and night with these feelings of guilt. And guilt is something we all deal with. But what we need to learn is, is these feelings of guilt, they come from two different sources. Sometimes our feelings of guilt come from the enemy, Satan, who accuses us. But at other times, the guilt that we feel comes from the Holy Spirit that is seeking to convict us. You see, feelings of guilt can be good or bad depending where they come from. In the hands of Satan, feelings of guilt can paralyze us. But in the hands of the Holy Spirit, feelings of guilt can purify us. In the hands of Satan, feelings of guilt can, can overwhelm us with despair and agony to the point of death. But in the hands of the Spirit, feelings of guilt can cause us to have remorse to the point that we repent and we experience life. You see, it depends where the guilt is coming from. In the New Testament, we are told of two people who dealt with these feelings of guilt. Judas, who betrayed the Lord, and Peter, who denied the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but, but to be honest with you, there's not much difference in what Judas did and what Peter did. Judas just got paid for it. Peter didn't. They, they were both wrong. Judas denied the Lord, Peter betrayed the Lord, or Judas betrayed the Lord, Peter denied the Lord, and after they were both filled with guilt. The Bible says that Judas went out filled with remorse and shame, and he hung himself. The Bible tells us that Peter went out, wept bitterly, came to a point of repentance, and was restored 
to Jesus. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in death. You see, just because I feel guilty for something doesn't mean that I'm responding to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to understand something in this passage. This passage here isn't dealing with feelings of guilt. This passage is dealing with guilt. Notice what it says here. It says that Joshua's clothes were filthy. The word that is used there is a word that literally means human waste. Excrement. Poop. Joshua's clothes were covered with poop. He was filthy. And he was smelly. And that's what he was. He was guilty before God. Now some of you are saying, what did Joshua do that made him so filthy before God? Well, not necessarily anything that bad. Because the Bible says we're all guilty before God. In Isaiah, it says our best efforts are like filthy rags. Rags covered with human waste. The best that you can offer God is never going to be anything more than a pile of poop. You need to understand that. You are guilty before God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the family that you were brought up in. It doesn't matter your moral background. You are guilty before God. In Romans 3 verse 19, it says this, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. You see, our real problem isn't that we feel guilty. Our real problem is that we are guilty, whether we feel guilty or not. There are some of you here this morning who don't feel guilty. And I'm telling you, you're guilty. There are some of you here who come here, you claim to love Jesus, but you are living in sin right now. You're cohabitating with someone, you're having sex outside of marriage, and you're going, hey, I don't feel guilty, I don't care. You're guilty. There are some of you who have racial thoughts, and when God help us, those protests were going on in Charlottesville. You were saying, well, somebody needs to say that. And you don't feel guilty about it. I don't care. You're guilty. You're guilty before God. You see, our guilt has nothing to do with our feelings. Our guilt has everything to do with our standing before God. You see, some of us think that it is our conscience that determines our guilt. But your conscience is like a thermostat. A thermostat is set wherever you set it. And so you can set your conscience where it's very low. Or your conscience can be set where it's very high. Just because your conscience doesn't make you feel guilty doesn't mean you're not guilty. This word is what determines your guilt before God. And that's what Joshua was. 
He was guilty before Almighty God, just like each and every one of us. And so here's Satan saying, look at your priest. He is guilty. But notice what Jesus says. And, and whenever we see that phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it typically is referring to the pre-incarnate Jesus. And so Jesus says this to Satan. The Lord rejects your accusations. This man, he is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Now and here's what I know. A burning stick doesn't have the power to get out of the fire. Someone else has to come along and take that stick out of the fire. You see, God is the one who initiates salvation. God is the one who is proactive in salvation. If you die without being saved, you can't say, God didn't want to save me. Man, God loves you. And God has provided salvation for you. And if you choose to stay in the fire, it's because you have chosen to stay in the fire. Jesus has come to our defense. He has come to, to snatch us like Joshua as a burning stick out of the fire. In 1 John chapter 2, John said this. He said, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a defense attorney who pleads our case to the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the world. Here's Jesus. Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross so that we could be snatched from the fire. But Jesus didn't just come to snatch us from the fire. Notice what he did. He took off Joshua's filthy garment. You see, dealing with our guilt involves not only being snatched from the fire and experiencing God's grace, when God snatches us from the fire and he begins that work of grace, the very first thing he does is he removes our filthy garments. Jesus didn't come to this earth to tell you, were, tell you that you were clean even though you were dirty. Jesus came to this earth to remove your filthy clothes and give you clean clothes. There are some of you here who have this idea that Jesus came to this earth so that your sins could be forgiven and you can go on living in sin and in filth. And he didn't come for that reason. He came to set you free from the filth. He came to take all that off of you and give you brand new clothes. And that's what it says here. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 61. He says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation. He has draped me in the robe of righteousness. And that's what he does. Jesus said to the accuser, Satan, no Satan, I've snatched him out of the fire. He took off his filthy clothes and gave him brand new clean clothes. Verse 4 is basically a synopsis of, of all this section. In verse 4, we read this phrase, see, I have taken away your sin. That's God's grace. God coming into our lives and doing what we could never do. 
You see, we can never experience God's presence until our guilt is removed. And our guilt can never be removed until, one, we realize our utter inability to do it on our own. Just like a fire, we need to be, or a stick in the fire, we need to be snatched out of the fire. But we haven't experienced God's grace and our guilt hasn't been removed until we want those filthy clothes off. God takes them off and he gives us brand new clothes. God removes our guilt. Has your guilt been removed? Have you experienced God's grace? Have you been snatched from the fire? But second, if we want to experience God's presence, we've got to walk in obedience. Listen to what it says in verses 6 and 7. It says, Then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Joshua and said, This is what the Lord of heaven's army says, If you will follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over the temple and its courtyards, and I will let you walk among these others standing here. You see, once our guilt is guilt is dealt with, the Bible says we must walk in obedience. Notice what it says here. If you will follow my ways. Just because we've experienced God's grace doesn't mean we're going to live in God's presence. And again, that doesn't mean we can lose our salvation. We can't. But what we can lose is the presence of God, the intimacy with God, that, that, um, the, the power of God that comes from Him, Him taking over our lives. And, and there may be some of you here this morning who have experienced the grace of God and yet you're not walking in obedience and you know that you know that you're not living in his presence right now you see walking in obedience is carrying on what God has begun in your life when God saved you when you experienced his grace he took the filth away took off the old clothes and he gave you new clothes if you have your Bibles still open, or even if you don't, turn with me to the New Testament book of Colossians. Colossians is one of the letters that Paul wrote to, um, to the churches in Asia. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul deals with this taking off the old and putting on, on the new. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you, some translations say, take off this. So he's saying, these are the things that you take off. These are the filthy things that you take off. And then he gives us a list. It's not a complete list. It's not an exhaustive list. But it's a list that is long enough to get our attention, isn't it? And he tells us the things that we take off. The sexual immorality, the lust, the impurity, the evil, the desires, the, the greed, the, the anger, the dirty language, the, the malicious behavior, the slander, all of these things, we strip off this old. And we do that every day. Every day, you and I are to get up and say, Lord, I today remove that old from my life. I don't want that old in my life. And as we get up, we put on the new. And he talks about the new in verse 12. He says, since God has chosen you to be his holy people, he loves, you must clothe yourselves with. And he tells us what we're to be clothed with. Tenderhearted, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. We make allowance for one another's faults. We forgive one another. 
We clothe ourselves with love. There are things we take off and there are things that we put on. That's what walking in obedience is. It's, it's taking those sinful, filthy, dirty things off and saying, I don't want them in my life. And it's putting on those those attitudes and those behaviors and those actions that model and mimic the life of Jesus. That's walking in obedience. Here's what I know. If you want to live in God's presence daily, you must walk in obedience. So Zechariah tells us if we want to recapture the presence of God, we must deal with our guilt. And the only way our guilt can be dealt with is through God's grace. We must walk in obedience, and that is a daily decision, a daily commitment. But then third, if we want to experience the presence of God, we can't fear the mountains. And you say, Rocky, what are you talking about? Well, this is in chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. This is what God says to Zerubbabel. Listen to, listen to it. It says, then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel, it's not by force nor by strength but by my spirit says the Lord of heaven's army nothing not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way it will become a level plain before him and when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place the people will shout may God bless it may God bless it then another message came to me from the Lord Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of the temple and he will complete it then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. Now let's go back. When Solomon built the original temple, as far as man is concerned, Solomon had unlimited resources. But when they were rebuilding the temple of God, you need to understand they didn't have unlimited resources. These were exiles who had been taken into captivity that were coming back to their homeland as paupers. They didn't have a lot. They had very little. And to rebuild this temple seemed like a monumental task, especially when they were thinking about the temple of old. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. And what God says to Zerubbabel is, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's not by the things that man can do that, that this task is going to be completed. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, God is saying to Zerubbabel, you have limited resources, I know that. You don't have an army to protect you, I know that. You don't have the manpower to do this work like you think it needs to be done, I know that. But this isn't going to be done by might nor by power. It's my spirit that is going to get this done. And then notice what he says. He says, nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. And you may be asking yourself what is he talking about there a, a, a mighty mountain well when you think about a mountain what do you think about you, don't you think about an obstacle I mean something that is in the way of you accomplishing what you want to do well, well turn with me to Ezra chapter 4 in Ezra chapter 4 Zerubbabel was rebuilding the temple and in Ezra chapter 4 it says the en enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and said to the other leaders, let us build with you. Now, let me just stop there. 
I mean, it, it doesn't take rocket science to figure out that if your enemy comes and says, hey, I want to help you, you reject their help. Right? I mean, if your enemy comes and says, hey, I want to help you do this great task, then don't listen to them because they've got something bad in mind, not something good in mind. And so what does Zerubbabel do? He rejected their request. It says, but Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the other leaders of Israel replied, you will have no part in this work. And then in verse 4 it says, then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them to frustrate their plans. This went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. And then it says, years later, when Xerxes became, began his reign, the enemies of Judah wrote a letter of accusation against the people of Judah. On and on and on, they were fighting against the work that God wanted them to do. Don't ever think don't ever think that what God has called you to do is going to be easy. God's Word never says it's going to be easy. God's Word never says it's not going to be difficult. God's Word never says you're not going to face opposition. As a matter of fact, you will face opposition if it's something worthy of God's glory. But here's what we know. No mountain will stand in the way of Zerubbabel. He will make the mountains into plain level fields. And what he did for Zerubbabel, he can do for you. And, and then notice what he says. He says, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Let me go back. Zerubbabel had begun this work 20 years earlier. We don't know how far they had gotten, but they didn't get very far. And, and so every day, they were reminded of how little they had gotten done. They saw this partially built wall to the temple. I imagine they got discouraged. They got disappointed. They felt like failures. And what did God do? God said, don't despise those small beginnings. I delight in those small beginnings. I rejoice in those small beginnings. Here's what you need to understand. Every work of God begins small. Every work of God. There are some of you here right now that God has laid something big on your heart. And you know it is from God because it's been verified in His Word. It's been clarified through people who are spiritually mature. And you know God wants you to do this, but you're not. And the reason you're not is because you look at your resources and they're limited. You look at your abilities and you don't think you have them. And you go on and on through the list. And God says, don't despise the small beginnings. In other words, if I've called you to do this, just get started. Get started. And trust me. How do we recapture the presence of God? How do we experience the presence of God in our life? We deal with our guilt. We walk in obedience and we can't fear the mountains. And what happens when we experience the presence of God? Well, I can't go into detail, but I do want to give you a few things. First of all, when we experience the presence of God, we walk in fellowship with God. Notice what it says in chapter 3, the end of verse Seven, he says, I will let you walk among these others standing here. You say, what does that mean? 
It's talking about intimacy. It's talking about walking daily with God. God said, I want you to know when you recapture the presence of God, you're going to experience fellowship, intimacy with me. That's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is the impossible becomes possible. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 6, it says, This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. All this may seem impossible to you now in a small remnant of God's people, but is it impossible for me? And it wasn't. God did it. The temple was rebuilt. Third, we will experience our fast of mourning becoming festivals of joy. When the temple was destroyed, the people of Israel began to fast four times a year. They were in mourning because their temple had been destroyed. And there was a group of people who came to Zechariah and, and the other leaders and said, should we continue these fasts? And, and listen to what it says in Zechariah chapter 7 verse 3 and, and chapter 8 verse 19. In chapter 7 it says, they were to ask this question of the prophets and the priests at the temple of the Lord of Heaven's armies. Should we continue to mourn and fast each summer? on the anniversary of the temple's destruction as we have done for so many years? In, in chapter 8, verse 19, we're given the answer. And it says, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Their traditional fast in times of mourning you have kept in early summer, midsummer, autumn, and winter are now ended. They will become festivals of joy and celebrations for the people of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. In other words, the thing that brought mourning and despair is now going to bring joy to your life. Here's what I know. Listen to me. This is important. When you are walking in the presence of God, even when you are going through the most heart-wrenching days of your life, you can experience seasons of joy. You say, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense apart from God. But I'm here to testify that when you're walking in His presence during the times of mourning, the most difficult mornings, He brings joy. He does that when we experience His presence. One final thing. When we're walking in his presence, people will see God in us. Chapter 8, verse 23, it says this. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. In those days, ten men from ten different nations and languages of the world will clutch at the sleeve of one Jew. And they will say, please, let us walk with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In other words, when you recapture the presence of God in your life, it will be so evident that people will be coming up to you going, I don't know what it is you've got, but I want what you've got. They'll see something different in you. The way that you handle adversity, the way that you handle pain, the way that you handle the setbacks of life, even the way that you handle the celebrations of life, it will be different, and they will look at you and they will go, listen, there's something different about you. God is with you. Can we walk with you for a while and see what's going on? It's pretty awesome. That's what happens when we experience or we recapture the presence of God. So where are you? 
I said at the beginning that I'm convinced that some of us here, we've never experienced the presence of God, not really. We may have prayed a prayer, we may have been dunked in a pool of water, we may have joined a church, we may have joined multiple churches. But truth be told, we've never experienced the presence of God. There's never been a time in our life where, where the God of all creation came to live in our life and he literally did make us new. And, and if you're here and, and you can't say that God has made you new, then what you need to do this morning is you need to deal with your guilt. You need to humbly come before Jesus, acknowledging your sin, acknowledging your rebellion, asking him to forgive you, asking him to save you, asking him to fill you with your Holy, his Holy Spirit. But there's others of us here who, we can go back to that time. We know that it was real, but, but sin has entered into our life. For others of us, fear has entered into our life, and we're not walking by faith. And, and we're no longer experiencing that presence of God in our life. And what we need to do, if that's you, is we need to confess the sin and forsake it. Or we need to confess the fear and step into faith. Because I'm here to tell you, God created you to walk daily experiencing his presence. And if you're not, you're missing out. I want you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. With your head bowed and with your eyes closed. If you're here and you're in that first category, you've never experienced the the life-changing power of Jesus, then today I want to ask you if the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you to humble yourself before God, acknowledge your need, and give your heart and give your life to Jesus. You can do it by praying this simple prayer with a sincere heart. The words won't do anything for you unless you really mean it, but if you really want Him to do something, you can pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me. I've sinned against you. I've rebelled against you. I'm guilty. Forgive me. I know you love me. You came to this earth. You died on the cross to pay for my sins. You rose from the grave defeating sin and death for me. Right here in this moment, I'm asking you to save me. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. Take control. Make me new. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. Thank you for hearing me. Now, if you're here this morning and you need to pray a different type of prayer, because you've been saved and yet you've wandered you've strayed I want to give you a promise that's found in Zechariah 1 I believe it's verse 3 God says return to me and I will return to you says the Lord in other words if you turn from the sin that has entered into your life if you quit walking by fear and begin to walk by faith God will restore his presence in a way that's evident in your life. 
So if that's what you need to do, then I encourage you to pray this prayer. Dear God, I come to you this morning knowing that I've been saved. You changed me. You made me new. I remember when it happened. It was the greatest day of my life. But I've wandered, strayed, sinned, haven't been trusting you. Forgive me. I'm tired of living this way. I need your presence. I need your direction. Forgive me for where I failed you. Fill me with your spirit in you. Give me both the desire and the power to live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for healing. Amen.